0: Welcome to Proverbs, my name is Doug Taylor, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Uh, and I think we've covered off whether there are any leftover comments from last time. Um, Just a, a repeat of something that I cover in the introduction most of the time in this class, and that is our methodology is to look at each verse in Proverbs, and the very first thing we want to do is read the verse and ask what questions pop up about that verse. What isn't clear to us? What needs definition? What do we need to be thinking about in terms of trying to understand what it is that King Solomon is trying to tell us? Once we get the questions on the table then we can start jumping to answers because uh, in society these days we have a tendency to want to quickly go to, well, what's the answer? Uh, But first we want to ask the questions and there's a huge amount to be gained for us in that process uh, because it teaches us to ask questions and think of other questions, and oftentimes one question can lead to another question, which can lead to another question, and it helps helps open up our minds to new ideas that we might not see if we try to quickly go uh, for the answer. So we are in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27 tonight. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. And the verse reads, The fear of Hashem will prolong days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The fear of Hashem will prolong days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So, first question is, what in fact does that really mean? Uh, what, What are the questions that we could ask around that verse to try to understand and get at what King Solomon is trying to tell us. The fear of HaShem will prolong days but the years of the wicked will be shortened. What kind of questions come to mind? Any? Okay Pamela, good. How? How is it that the fear of HaShem prolongs days and how is it that the years of the wicked will be shortened? What? What's the mechanism there? How does that actually work? Excellent. Good question. Any others? I'll pause just for a second because I see a couple of you are writing. Okay, and Kathleen, you've suggested it's giving one a choice to choose uh, from, from good or evil. Okay, all right, so that's a possible solution. But first let's see if we can get all the questions out on the table that we want to consider as we go. Okay, here's here's one to start with. What's the fear of Hashem? We we hear that phrase a lot, the fear of Hashem, but the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean like I should cower in the corner like... uh, you know, someone who's about to be, uh, you know, uh, punished, or does it mean something else? What exactly does the fear of Hashem mean? So there's there's a question to get us on the table. Second question, which gets to what Pamela raised: Why does the fear of Hashem prolong or increase days? How, how does that work, and what does that mean? And the companion to that from the second half would be So, why are the years of the wicked shortened? I mean, what does that mean? Okay, and uh, Pamela, you've suggested a, an answer, it looks like, to the question of what's the fear of Hashem? Okay, so let's start with that question What's the fear of Hashem? And you suggested it's to recognize who he is. Okay, any other thoughts on what the fear of Hashem is? Kathleen, I'm not sure if that's an answer to the question, but it could be beware of the wrath from your evil doings. Do you mean the wrath of Hashem or the wrath of someone else? If you could clarify, that would help. Okay, Pamela, good. The fear of Hashem is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, and Kathleen. Okay, so the wrath of Hashem, which then, of course, is going to beg the question: Well, what is the wrath of Hashem? So let me suggest an approach on this, because um, sometimes it can be that we get in our mind the idea that the fear of Hashem is a a thing where you know I might. I might huddle in the corner and and shake because I feel like I'm about to be beat up by somebody really big. Um, And I'd like to suggest a a different approach to thinking about what the fear of Hashem means. Hashem created a world that is made up of systems. And we often call these systems the laws of nature. We have atmospheric systems and ecologic systems and systems of light and sound transmission and all kinds of things like that. They are physically outside of us and there are lots of them. In fact the entire world you could say is a giant system. And Internally we have systems as well. Uh, We have a digestive system, we have a nervous system, we have a muscular system, a reproductive system, and so forth. So I'd like to suggest that when we talk about the fear of Hashem it means the fear of consequences it's not like uh, the idea of you know a big uh, dad figure or, or authority figure who's standing up there just like waiting to smush, smush us down because I mean God is not physical and, and so that's just an anthropomorphic uh, metaphor anyway but that the fear of Hashem means that I fear consequences, and to fear consequences, I have to recognize the systems that God created, and operate in accordance with those, because I fear the consequences of not operating in accordance with them. It's a uh, panel you've mentioned awe, and and uh, I would say yes, and and also it's a it's a. Maybe healthy respect for consequences. <clears throat> we don't walk out and cross, you know, a busy freeway uh, on foot. Why? Because we have a fear of the consequences. Um, that's not a fear that somebody's going to come up and you know beat me up. It's that, boy, if I do that, the consequences are going to be very uncomfortable and maybe fatal. So I'm not going to go down that road. Um, so. In this case I recognize that there is a creator who created a world to operate in a certain way and that there are consequences when I don't operate in accordance with the systems that he created. Uh, And that can include all the laws of nature uh, and it could also uh, include halakha. And Kathleen, you've brought the question up is, is it that one must be true to the laws of Torah? I believe that is part of that, because we're looking at a creator who created the universe, and he gave us the Torah, and in the Torah are a system of laws that say, uh, here are things you can do, here are things you can't do. And God gave us that Torah as a benefit to us, not because he sat back and said, well, life would be fine but i'm just going to make it miserable for people by uh, imposing a bunch of rules and regulations on them uh, just because i want to i mean that is not uh, a benevolent creator the the creator created us and then said uh, or essentially uh, gave us a manual for life it says here's how to make the best life that you can have on this planet follow these rules Like if you buy a computer. You want the computer to work? Good. Follow these rules. If you don't, it won't work well for you. And it's not that the manufacturer is coming along and beating you up because you didn't follow the rules. It's that the manufacturer said, this is the way it operates. If you want to have the best work or best results with this computer, use it this way. And then the user has a choice. You can use it this way or not use it that way. And if you don't use it that way, the computer's not going to work very well. If you do use it that way, then it will work well. So, the fear of Hashem, in a very practical way, in the sense of the book of Mishle, the book of Proverbs, is, I'm going to suggest, about the fear of consequences and being aware of the various systems that God created, including the laws of the Torah, that I have to follow. So it's not fear out of Uh, out out of the sense of of being, I guess, scared, it's a healthy respect for the consequences that will happen to me if I don't follow those systems. Okay. Let me pause there and ask, are there any questions about that or does that make sense? Okay, I'll take no response as we're okay to go. Okay, good. Thank you. Now, so if that's the fear of Hashem, then the question is, as we've defined it, why should that prolong or increase a person's days? What do you think? Why should that prolong or increase a person's days? Anyone have any thoughts? I mean, that's what the verse is telling us, so there must be a meaning and a mechanism whereby that works. Ah, Pamela, excellent, thank you. We avoid many pitfalls. Right. Because Mishlei is, uh, Proverbs, is a very practical book. Now, if you operate in accordance with the laws of nature, in accordance with reality, then you reduce or eliminate stress in your life, and you have the best chance for success in your endeavors. So, if, you've, if you're really operating fully in accordance with reality, then your endeavors themselves will be in line with God's systems. So you'll have little, if any, stress, and you'll be acting in accordance with what God intended for man and woman on this planet. So your days will be lengthened or increased or prolonged. You won't make the mistakes that a person who's not following those systems will make. And some people make mistakes not following those systems. uh, And those mistakes literally shorten their lives, cause them to be killed early or to die early or to uh, have a, a, a much less fulfilling life. The stress that people undertake by having certain goals that are at odds with God's systems or where they're trying to um, fight against those. That stress I mean, causes uh, huge amounts of, of difficulties. Medical science is now figuring out stress is one of the biggest you know killers that we have in terms of its effect on heart disease and uh, our, our bodies and, and just the quality of life that we live. So by living in accordance with those systems, then we have the best chance for success. And so our lives end up being lengthened or prolonged. And Pamela, you made a great point. God wants us to succeed. I mean, God loves his creation. And uh, so, you know, he created us, gave us a world, uh, gave us a a manual on how how to live the best life here, Uh, And then gave us free will to choose what we're going to do about that. And and Kathleen, you're right. If we can de-stress, then we'll live longer. Uh, There's an interesting statement in the Talmud uh, that, if I recall, says, multiply your possessions, multiply your anxieties. It's like the more stuff you have, the more stress you have. And, you know, clearly there's a balance. There are certain things we need to have in order to live a comfortable life. I mean, I'd like to have a, a house and, you know, some food and a chair and tables and bed and so forth. But uh, then you, you begin to see people that live in places that are literally palaces, you know, with, I don't know, 50 rooms and uh, this and that. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, are are, are they really living a a less stressful life than uh, a person that's you know living on a lot less. Uh, there, there's a balance point and everybody has to find their own. My point here is that eliminating things that cause you stress is a way to prolong uh, life. Now we could take the word prolonged two different ways and I'm going to suggest that both of them work in terms of it, their interpretation in, the, in this verse. First, when it says that the fear of Hashem will prolong days, it could mean that your actual days on the planet will be longer. That is, you'll live longer. How could that be? Well, there are two reasons. First, as we've discussed, you are act in accordance with the laws of nature and reality so you make wise decisions that result in safety for you. You don't take risky chances. Uh, you don't sort of bet the farm on the bungee cord, so to speak. Uh, but you're careful and you're circumspect. Uh, you eat to maintain your health, uh, you take care of your body, things like that. That gives you the best opportunity to have a long life. Second, as we've just discussed by living in a line with reality, you eliminate the stress that comes from not living in line with reality. Uh, an interesting example of that, which uh, is to take a look at a picture, of anyone who has been elected president of the United States and look at them when they first take office and then look at the picture of them when they get out of office and you will notice an amazing difference that office ages a person it's a very very stressful job and that stress takes a toll and you can see it just in in the way their countenance has aged. Um, Interestingly, unlike today's society where people uh, really struggle and compete for leadership positions, the sages of old shunned leadership positions because those leadership responsibilities would draw them away from their main focus which was learning. Uh, It's my understanding that they would take on leadership positions only when there was a need and no one else was available to do it. Then, once the work was done, they would go back to their main focus which was Torah study. Today we have people who spend all kinds of money in the public arena, in in politics, trying to get into leadership positions. In the private sector you have people doing all these kinds of uh, all kinds of different things in order to get uh, this promotion or that promotion to get into that position or the other position. Uh, and, uh, and yet that's kind of the opposite of what the Sages of Old did. Uh, I heard of a, of a Jewish gentleman I think here in the local Seattle area worked for a very large corporation and they kept wanting to promote him into a supervisory or more management role and he kept declining and the reason he declined was I have my kids at home and I am able with the job I have now to leave at a particular time and go home and be involved in spending time with my family and in learning and if I take on this management job it is going to demand more of my time and more energy and I'm earning enough for a living and I want to be able to have the time to be able to focus on my Torah studies that's my understanding of the decision you made very very different decision than what is commonly touted uh, in our society. And Naomi, I'm glad you were able to, uh, to get back on. Okay, so the fear of Hashem can prolong your days for purely physical reasons. But there is another possible interpretation of that. And that is that prolong your days could mean that the quality of the days you have is increased. Okay, the quality of the day, not, not the number of days, but the actual quality of the time that you have in the days that you have. And I'll suggest the same principle. The principles that we've been talking about operate in this arena too. Because the righteous person, the one who fears Hashem, who fears the consequences of not operating in accordance with reality, because he does operate, that person, because he does operate in accordance with reality, he doesn't have the conflicts that the wicked have he the righteous person flows with reality and so the quality of each day that he has is on a completely different level than the level of someone who isn't operating in accordance with God's systems so he has even if the the number of days that a righteous person had were equal to the number of days of life that a wicked person has the quality of the hours and minutes that the righteous person lives are going to be at a way different level, a higher level than the level of a wicked person who is constantly in conflict and struggling and stressed and, and so forth so the term prolonging days or length of days can refer to either living long or it can refer to the quality of the days that you have. Uh, That is, each day's individual length is increased by the quality of the life that you are living during that time. So both interpretations work. Okay, any questions up until now? Okay, so now let's talk about the second half of the verse. Why will the years of the wicked be shortened? Well, what do you think? Why will the years of the wicked be shortened? We've talked about how the the fear of Hashem will prolong days. Why would the years of the wicked be shortened? Uh, Pamela, can you elaborate on that comment? I'm not quite sure what that means. give you just another minute why do you think the years of the wicked will be shortened ah okay thank you now I understand so yeah a wicked person who commits murder could be uh, could be executed so that could shorten their days Uh, Kathleen you pointed out the the wicked always get their comeuppance Um, I would agree and in fact it's really the opposite of what we've discussed about the people who fear Hashem. First, because the wicked are not acting in accordance with reality, they'll make mistakes that can harm them or even cause death. Now that could be because they literally make a mistake and do something that they haven't thought through that has very deleterious consequences, or they could do something that's just plain unlawful and society catches up with them and chooses to execute them. Either way, their life gets shortened. In addition, because the wicked are constantly in conflict they're under great internal stress. And as we talked about, stress takes a big toll on a person and that toll adds up over time. So, all other things being equal, the life of a wicked person will be shorter uh, than the life of a righteous person and that could be either in length of days because the wicked does something uh, either stupid or criminal or whatever that actually literally shortens his life or the quality of the life that he lives each day will be on a way lower level will be will be shortened His days will be shortened because he's constantly under stress and wondering you know is this going to work out is that going to work out and, and so forth so the quality of the time that he has isn't even very good so all in all his years will be shortened whereas the years of one who fears Hashem uh, his days will be prolonged Okay. and Naomi you're absolutely right the wicked will create strife and they will have uh, a lot of conflict in their lives Uh, and Pamela yes they don't cope with failure very well uh... they don't sit down and say "Hmm, let me do an analysis here to find out what exactly i did wrong so that i can make a rational choice to do something better next time uh... a wicked person is operating on the basis of his emotions and so is going to be driven by those uh, uh, and will will not cope with failure well Uh, and yes they do waste their time scheming Uh, in fact you know i think Uh, if I recall one book I read by a guy who was a gangster uh, he said and I think this has been said by more than one if I took all the time and intelligence and whatever that we worked into the schemes and shakedowns and so forth that we came up with you know I could have been a very successful legitimate businessman and he probably wouldn't have you know had to have been looking over his shoulder or worried about the things he was worried about and this man ended up spending a very long time in prison when he was finally uh, uh, caught for some of the things that he was doing. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, let's move on. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28. The verse reads, The expectation of the righteous is joy, But the hope of the wicked will perish. The expectation of the righteous is joy, but the hope of the wicked will perish. So, what are the questions that we could ask around that verse? The expectation of the righteous is joy, but the hope of the wicked will perish. Any ideas? Any questions? Let's just talk about questions first. And Kathleen, let me give you just a minute. Okay. And you mentioned positivism flourishes but negativism dies. Okay. Now I understand what you're saying. And that could be uh what the expectation of the righteous is and the hope of the wicked. So that that really gets us around to our our major questions here. First of all, w- why can the righteous expect joy? I mean it says the expectation of the righteous is joy. Well, why do the righteous why why do they expect joy? And what is the hope of the wicked? It says the hope of the wicked will perish. It doesn't tell us what the hope of the wicked is. So what is it? And why does it perish? So what I'd like to do is start with the second half and talk about what is the hope of the wicked. I will suggest to you that the hope of the wicked is that his evil plans will succeed. He has certain emotional desires that are coming out in what we would call evil plans. Okay, he's got certain things he wants to get done, and that's his hope that his plans will succeed. And as we discussed last week, uh, those desires could include the desire for fame, or money that is somehow obtained in an unjust way, uh, or power, or vengeance. Any number of things, and Pamela, yes, it's it's all for the self. The wicked man is focused on himself. He's not focused on society or justice, or the fact that he's just one piece of a of a giant sea of humanity. He is focused on me. You know, I want my stuff the way I want, and uh, you know, I'll essentially go about pretty much whatever I have to do to get it. Now, those desires are not because those emotional desires that are driving him they're not because he rationally worked out that those are things he needs in life Um, for the wicked his plans are his attempt to fulfill his emotional desires now we've talked before uh, that the wicked are not operating in accordance with reality their emotional desires are guiding them incorrectly remember you have two things in life you have your emotions and you have your intellect. The question is, which one are you going to use to make your decisions? Okay. Uh, your emotions will cause you to see reality incorrectly. While your intellect has the capability of seeing reality clearly. That does not make, by the way, your emotions wrong or bad. And and the point is not to try to get rid of them. We emotions are a part of who we are, it's a part of the human condition it's simply a question of which one of us which one of those is going to be the vehicle by which I make my life decisions. So let's take a closer look at the wicked. What is it that the wicked person really wants? Suppose a wicked person cooks up a scheme to steal a hundred million dollars. Why is he doing that? What is it that the wicked person wants? What do you think? He's cooked up a scheme to steal a hundred million dollars. The question is why? What, what's driving him? Okay. Power and money, okay, thank you. Good, Kathleen. And yes, family, he, yeah, he hates authority. Could be a vengeance thing. I'm going to get back at that guy. Could be I want power and I want money. Um, and Kathleen, I did note your comment about the expectation of the righteous is joy because they feel the light of the Creator. And we'll get to the first half uh, here in, uh, in just a second. Um, okay. Okay could be could be the wicked are driven by power, by money, or they hate authority. Uh, okay Naomi, interesting point. It may be he needs money uh, and there's no work available or he sees an easy way to, to get it. He wants a shortcut. okay? Very good. Well, let's take the, the wicked person that wants to steal a hundred million dollars, okay? I'll suggest to you, it's clearly not a practical thing. If a person were hungry and starving and wanted to steal a loaf of bread from the bakery shop, it's still theft, but that's a different issue. Okay, Because there's a very practical motivation for that person to do that. The the wicked person that wants to steal $100 million, he doesn't need $100 million to live. I mean, you can live comfortably on way less than $100 million. So it's not like the wicked person sat down and worked it all out rationally and said, now let me see, in order to live a comfortable life, I have to have X dollars for home and Y dollars for food and a certain amount for clothing and taxes and a car and so forth. And so that's how he came up with the idea of stealing $100 million because he had it all itemized. I'll suggest that something else is driving him. And if something else is driving him and it's not a rational, intellectual approach, then it has to be his emotions that are driving him. So why does he want the 100 million? Because of the fantasy. I'll be rich, is what he's thinking. It's a fantasy notion that if you're rich, you'll be happy. And if you're rich, all your problems will be solved. As someone said, the poor think that money will solve all their problems. The rich have no such illusions. Okay, And we can look around at the world and see this. I mean, we see all kinds of people with all kinds of wealth, and they're not happy. In fact, some of them are downright miserable. In fact, there is a, uh, uh, I th- at least one study, and there may be more, where they have looked at people who won lotteries. You know, big piles of money, and they suddenly became instantaneously wealthy, uh, and a huge number of them, their lives end up being ruined by it, uh, and a number of them afterwards, you know, when they've lost it all, uh, say, you know, I wish I'd never gotten the money in the first place. Uh, it it really messes them up. Um, so, we don't see that you know, the things that a wicked person is striving for really bring them true happiness. Now, somebody brought up a panel. He brought up uh, he wants to be the authority. For, for the wicked, it could be that, in, in our case, the wealth to him is a sign of power. He wants to be in charge. He feels like he'll be powerful. He'll be an authority when he has $100 million. And there could be other reasons. The key here is that his motivation stems from his emotions. So now, and yes, Pamela, money is power, he thinks. Uh, and it is, it is so not true, but people still do it. In fact, I mean, in my state, here in Washington, uh, the state has a state-sponsored lottery. And they have billboards, uh, I think they still have those up, and they have done radio ads and so forth, trying to get people to buy lottery tickets. And I've listened to their, to their advertisements, and they play into this. They try to get you in touch with the fantasy of, I'll be rich. Uh, I mean, on one uh, one of them, if I recall years ago, uh, the tickets were a dollar, and the payoff was a million dollars. And at the end of the ad, they or I think near the end, they said something like, chances of winning one in 38 million. Now, i you stop and say, hold it a minute. Lottery ticket costs a dollar. The payoff is a million dollars. If the odds of winning are one in 38 million, that means on average you would have to invest 38 million dollars in lottery tickets to have an expected return of one million dollars. Let me repeat that. You would have to invest or buy 38 million dollars worth of lottery tickets in order to have an expected mathematical return of one million dollars. Who in the world would ever invest thirty-eight million dollars for an expected return of one million? You would expect to get way more than thirty-eight million in return if you were going to make an investment. So So the mathematics is buying a lottery ticket is a ridiculous investment. But why do people do it? It's the fantasy. And that's what the lottery commission played on uh, in their advertisements. So now let's... let's uh, it, And Pamela, to your question, uh, it's a fundraising uh, deal for the state of Washington and for other states as well uh, because they take the extra money and then they use it for uh, various programs of the state. So let's take our $100 million wicked guy. So now one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to be successful in stealing the $100 million, or he won't. Okay? If he isn't successful, then he will have failed and his hope of being wealthy and powerful will perish, as the verse indicates. Remember? Our verse says, the hope of the wicked will perish. Okay? Now, and when the verse talks about the hope of the wicked, I'll suggest two possible things it could be referring to. It could be referring to the actual plan itself. Um, so, for example, let's, let's suppose um, that, that he is in fact um, uh, successful. And Let me back up just a second. Uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either he's successful in stealing the 100 million, or he won't. And if he doesn't, then his hope perishes. But suppose he's successful what happens then? Okay. Well, since his desire is rooted in the emotions and isn't practical and isn't in accordance with reality then I'll suggest it has to ultimately fail by definition. Will the hundred million satisfy his emotion? I will suggest that we see in practical life that it doesn't. Why? Well now that I have a hundred million Yeah, but wait a minute, there's a guy over here with 200 million. Well, he's richer than me, so now I have a further drive. I need to accumulate, or (laughs) we could read that as steal, even more. Because the quest for fulfilling an emotion that is not in accordance with reality can be never-ending, because the emotion can't be fulfilled. Because remember, it's not reflecting true reality. Guy is not trying to get money for a practical reason. Okay? It's, the emotion is fooling him. It distorts his lens on life, the way he looks at life. And so even if he gets the money, he's not going to get the emotion fulfilled, and he's not going to be satisfied. And that may be why we see wicked people who never stop. They think they want one thing, but that just leads to wanting another thing and another thing and another thing and their underlying hope that this thing they're trying to get or that they're trying to do that that will fulfill their desire that hope perishes because the desire is never fulfilled. Okay? Again, because the wicked aren't operating in accordance with reality they're destined to have their hopes perish because unless your hopes are in line with the reality that God created reality is going to win out and a person's hope is going to perish okay so let me pause and uh, answer questions so uh, Kathleen you've asked why California is in such a difficult strait uh, that I can't answer because I think that goes well beyond lotteries um, and uh, just goes to a lot of financial factors that I'm not familiar enough in and uh, know enough to to comment on. Um, uh, Certainly, yes, Kathleen, the pursuit of more than you need keeps you away from focusing on what's really important in life. You mentioned spirituality. Uh, uh, it, It keeps you focused on the physical. And a certain amount we need in the physical world, yes, but the real purpose of life is to be involved in the world of ideas and growth and learning about God and character development. Uh, and so if I'm focused all on just getting, you know, lots and lots of physical things, then that can pull me away from being involved uh, in what's truly important. And Naomi, um see, you wrote... Yeah, very good point. Uh, the, the wicked person who steals hasn't worked for what he got. And so he does not value it in the same way as uh, the person who has worked for it and knows that he is entitled to it. So a man who goes and works in the field all day and earns you know, a very modest amount of money has worked and he's earned it and he knows it. And it's his and he can sleep at night the wicked person who cheated and schemed and robbed yeah he may have more money his bank account may be bigger but the stress and the anxiety and the conflict that he's in uh, and the unfulfilled emotional desire his sleep at night is not going to be sweet uh, presumably because of that And I think we have a verse in somewhere in the Tanakh that uh, uh, refers uh, refers to that so yeah exactly Uh, Naomi and Pamela I think you're saying the same thing Uh, the the laborer's sleep is very sweet he's satisfied because he is legitimately earning uh, uh, his due and he's trading value for value uh, and, and not trying to cut corners okay so Any questions up till now? We're still just on the second half. We've figured out why the hope of the wicked will perish. So, now let's talk about the first half. Why is the expectation of the righteous joy? Well, as we've discussed before, the righteous live in accordance with the systems that Hashem creates. That's their desire and they see themselves as part of those systems so their whole focus is not on the self it's they see themselves as just a piece of a much bigger system and their focus is on the system and their joy is in being a part of that so their motive is to live in reality and be a part of God's systems that's what they want so by studying reality and learning to think and analyze ideas correctly, they're able to live in accordance with reality. Now, when they run into a problem, they analyze it. And if they have an emotion that's getting in their way, they analyze that. And by doing that, they're operating with what you could call maximum efficiency within the systems that God created. And Pamela, you've mentioned serving Hashem. I'll submit to you that that is the service of Hashem. When you are involved in the world of reality, living in in accordance with that, uh, both in terms of laws of nature and in terms of the halakic system, in being involved in the world of learning and understanding and thinking and analyzing through your life, and making changes where you need to, and undoing emotions where you need to, that is what God wants us to be. Uh, involved in. Uh, Interestingly, as an aside, uh, I went to a um, uh, a Christian college uh, many years ago and one of the big things when you were in college was trying to figure out what God's will was for your life. And We somewhat treated that like there was a single answer that we really would like if it showed up in the mail or maybe in a FedEx envelope that, you know, God would send down this little gilded parchment where would say, you should be a doctor, or you should be a lawyer, or you should be a scientist. And we would spend all this time praying about, um, you know, what is God's will for my life? Not realizing at the time that God's will for my life is for me to use my mind that he gave me to figure out what is the best occupation and situation I can set up for myself so that I can earn a living and raise a family and be involved in the world of ideas and learning and growth along the way? So we, wanted, we were taking, at that time, a very authoritarian view of things that said, just tell me what I should do and I'll do it. When in fact, what God's Torah is teaching is, I gave you a mind and here are the, the systems you need to live under. Figure it out figure out for you what is the best thing. Do you have a natural tendency to to uh, I- enjoy mathematics? Then you know go find a, a living as a mathematician. Do you enjoy um, you know a different kind of work? Then go find something that utilizes your natural aptitudes and skills in that arena. I've given you the tools, go live within the systems that I create. Um, and Pamela, you're absolutely right. Meanwhile we tread water. You know we're just sitting there sort of waiting for the answer and after four years sometimes of college, we still don't have what the, you know, the answer to the question, still wishing someone would come along and tell us instead of us taking responsibility uh, to do that ourselves. Going back to the verse, the righteous want to be involved in learning. So by applying these ideas and figuring out how best to live a practical life, they maximize their opportunity to be involved in learning. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, the fact that in the days of the sages, some of them would work on a daily basis just long enough to earn the amount they needed for that day. And then they would stop work and go learn. So if they were a laborer, they would go labor just long enough to earn enough for the day, and then they would go uh, to the house of study and learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... Why is their expectation joy? Because they are doing exactly what will bring them the most joy. They're involving themselves in learning. And so by analyzing their situation and acting in accordance with that reality, they're maximizing their opportunity to be involved in the true good, which is learning and knowledge. So, the righteous can expect joy because they're living the life that God intended for me. okay any questions about that and Pamela yep I understand many of us have been there and Naomi you said the interpretation was wrong at that time uh, if you're talking about the time that I was in college absolutely I did not have the correct understanding uh, at that time it took me uh, about 20 years after college before uh, I became exposed to the Torah way of life and that was when, uh, in my view, my learning really took off. Yep, many, many, if not virtually all of us that have somehow found our way onto this uh, Noahide path have, have uh, uh, been part of that, that situation. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes, Naomi, many in India. Uh, And Pamela, I'm not sure what you're referring to as the miracle in this particular situation. Can you help me out? If you're referring to uh, uh, the the exposure that that we've all been given to um, uh, to the the Torah way of life and the laws of reality, I would agree. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, getting off the wrong path. It's uh, we're we're incredibly incredibly fortunate. Uh, very much so. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate that. Uh, Naomi, you've asked a very interesting question. Will the people who preach wrong, uh, is is it counted as wicked? That is a very good question. I I don't know that I can give a definitive answer, but let me give some thoughts. Uh, Every one of us has been, as far as I know, uh, has been on the wrong path before we got on the right path. I mean, when I was in high school, I was a zealous Christian. And I was absolutely convinced I was right. And and I was completely sincere in that. Um, now, my understanding changed, and I kept asking questions and asking questions and asking questions. So if a person is out preaching ideas that are incorrect, I would think that a key question would be, is the person just holding fast to those ideas and refusing to open their mind to other possibilities. In other words, are they just stuck on it and they won't get off no matter what? Or, and and do they have a wicked motivation? Or, are they giving the best truth they know at the time, but they are continually involved in questioning and looking for what is really true uh, in the world? Um, and I I think that makes uh, a huge difference. I can't tell you how uh, God makes an accounting of that. Uh, I, I don't know, but um, you know, generally we we start out with incorrect ideas in life, and hopefully as we go along, we get those ideas corrected. Um, five years ago or so to pick any you know reasonable time period you want uh, I had a certain set of ideas and I thought they were right Uh, over the last five years I certainly hope I've learned some things and changed some of those ideas it makes me wonder sometimes gee what am I thinking now that I'm gonna discover five years from now is in error Uh, I don't know but what I want to be is constantly involved in that process of questioning I believe it is Sajigayon that said A person should always think they're right, okay? Because after all, I mean, who else are you going to turn to? I mean, you have to operate on the basis of of what you know and your own knowledge. So a person should always think that they're right, and he said, be willing to retract if someone shows them that they're wrong. So we have a duality, two things going on at once. There, I have to operate on the basis of the knowledge that I have. Uh, and so yes I think that I'm right but I want to hold that idea that I'm right loose enough so that if someone can come along and say look Doug let me prove to you that you're wrong I want to be intellectually honest and open enough to recognize that if they show me a proof that I'm wrong I'll abandon what I was thinking before and go after that because now I see that that's correct so I can't get emotionally attached to my belief or to my ideas because what I'm interested in is the truth not hanging on to my ideas at any cost so I will submit that my point is correct or my ideas are right but if you can show me a flaw in them I'm open to hear it that's I think the position that um, that Sanjay is trying to get to us that we need to, uh, uh, we need to take let me pause and look at at comments Um, uh, yeah, Pamela, you said that uh, Christianity doesn't like questions of course, Christianity is very, very broad uh, but there are certainly, definitely religious groups that do not like questions uh, because uh, they are people are uncomfortable at, at answering the questions and having beliefs challenged if you're really interested in what's true then questions don't bother you at all because all they do is either reinforce that you have the right idea or they will help hone you or hone your ideas to make them even more clear or more correct so you, you win either way um, and some groups, uh, Kathleen as you point out, uh, yeah they they don't want to explain uh, why they do what they do they just want you to do it it's a very authoritarian driven approach And I'm going to suggest that, kind of contrary at least to the society in which I was raised here in the United States, uh, the Torah approach is not about authoritarianism. Uh, Yes, there is God, and yes, we obey God, and we accept halakha, but God wants us to use our mind to understand why. Not just, okay, I'll do whatever you tell me, but to question and understand, here's why this is good for you, here's the benefit that I gain, and what that does is it helps us to see the beautiful beneficence of the Creator and how He set things up for us in in, uh, systems and systems laws on Halakha for our benefit. And when we see the beauty of that system, that draws us that much closer uh, to the Creator. Okay. And, uh, yes, Naomi, the the preacher who is preaching wrong is using uh, his Full application. Well, uh, if he's using his full application of mind in the wrong direction, then hopefully, if he is intellectually honest enough to be more interested in the truth than his current ideas, and someone shows him what the truth is, then he'll change. Okay. But if he's just locked into his own ideas and he's not going to change no matter how much proof you show him, then yeah, that's a. Then there's an emotional desire going on there. An emotional desire, maybe, of I've got to be right no matter what. And you can't tell me that I'm wrong. Or something has got to be driving that person so that they're unwilling to look at the truth. And that's what Michelet is talking about here uh, uh, when, when it makes that contrast uh, between someone who's being uh, driven by their emotions versus uh, being led by their, their intellect. <laughs> Pamela, very good point, the Torah is delicious, it is is a wonderful delight, Uh, I believe King David in the Psalms likens it to it's like a plaything for him, it's like, um, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I mean here, but it's like the world's greatest toy, I mean it's the most wonderful thing you can have because it has endless depth and you continue to get new ideas from it, and it's just, it's purely delicious, it's a delight. Okay, any other comments or questions? I'll just pause. <laughs> Pamela, very good, interesting way to put that. The database of all reality. Uh, and Naomi, that's wonderful. Proverbs are sweet to our ears. They teach us wonderful things. Thank you all very much for being here. Uh, As you all know, tomorrow is Yom Kippur, so I wish you the best of days tomorrow, and all of you a wonderful uh, year, and well beyond that. And I hope you will be able to uh, join us next week. Thank you so much.